for six years, this business has lost money. This last financial year, we made $20,000 profit on a revenue of about $6.5 million. And it took us six years of losing money to get to that point. So it's incredibly difficult. If you can have a product that you can sell for a decent price and you don't have to cut the price on because A, it's a great product and B, people care about the brand, I think it could be the difference between going out of business and not going out of business because you know you can't lose money forever. And if you're constantly discounting your product, which a lot of people in our industry do, it's just not going to add up. You're either going to have to get investors with very, very deep pockets to just dish out cash for the sake of it, or you're just going to go out of business. So I think it's life and death. And how did you fund the business for those six years? Every way you can think of. You, you name <laughs> any way of funding anything, and I've, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is Superfast Business with James Schramko. James Helping you build your business super fast. James Franco here. Welcome back to Super Fast Business. This is episode 784 and uh, we're celebrating this special episode with Dan Norris. G'day, Dan. Hey, mate. It's good to be back. I don't know what number I was on before, but congrats on that many episodes. That's amazing. (laughs) It's been a while, actually, between episodes and I can see from our notes, I was trying to track you down the last time you published a book, but luckily you published so many books, it's only a matter of time until I catch you. And this time, it seems like you're actually back in love with the process of marketing because I see you sort of oscillate between interested in it and then you retreat into whatever project you're in and then you come back out of the project and then you resurface. I've seen this pattern with you with your Dan's Mastermind Facebook group. Mm. Last time, you were probably too busy to do the podcast. This time, you're actively looking for podcasts. Tell me about that ever-changing landscape for Dan. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, when Black Ops started, I didn't really even work for Black Ops. It was sort of like, it just seemed like a very small thing. It was a bit of a side hustle. But before too long, when, when we physically built the brewery, when I sold my other business, it just started being very obvious that I was going to actually work in the business. There really wasn't enough work for me to do for the sort of work I do. I didn't know how to make beer. But, you know, eventually there came a point where I was going to work in the business full time. And at that point, I decided it would make more sense to shut everything else down. I mean, I wasn't shutting down massive projects. I was just turning off my paid membership and um, I had direct book sales and online products and things that, that it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was attention that, that I was, you know, that would take away from the brewery. And if I was going to go in it with two mates, I wanted to make sure I was going into it with as much enthusiasm and time as they were putting into it. So I kind of shut it all off. I just keep doing the books because I get bored and I write stuff down and eventually you write enough stuff down. It looks like half the size of the book and think, well, if I can write half a book, I can write a whole book. And that just seems to be a thing that's still happening. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you do because they're always fun. Like as soon as they come out, I buy them. I read them. I guess you you could say you'd be counterintuitive, a little bit controversial. You have a contrarian viewpoint to a lot of the things people in our market are exposed to, many of which I actually share with you. Like you, when I came online, I just didn't get it. I didn't get why these red screaming headlines with this pushy sort of sales thing was the norm. And I didn't understand why people accepted that. And I think the test of time has shown, especially with the emergence of social media, that that stuff's just not on anymore. And I will say you've influenced me a lot in my own business at various points with things like that time you did an affiliate-less review of my Traffic Grab product. I can't believe when I I logged on to YouTube, (laughs) there's this guy talking about my product and saying that it's actually a decent product and there was no affiliate link And you weren't even an affiliate. You just this guy who wanted to share with other people that the product was okay. And that really struck me. And 
that was definitely one of the key things. There's probably two or three things that caused me to turn off my affiliate program about seven years ago now, probably. But that was one of the significant ones was I would like to have products and services good enough that people would happily talk about it without getting a sling for it. So thanks for that. The other one is your dislike for things like pop-ups and (laughs) annoying tactics that people use. And I've made a deliberate effort now in my business to remove or make sure there are no deadline countdowns, that we don't have in-your-face pop-ups. We're not harassing people with upsell hell. One guy emailed me the other day and he said, listen, I'm interested in your product on revenue share deals. Is there an upsell? (laughs) And I replied back. I said, actually, there's no upsell. The product will get you the result all by itself. You don't need anything else for it to work. There's no in-the-cart upsell. And then I went into more of a conversation. Tell me about what you've been doing. Do you do revenue share deals now? Back and forth. Mm. Anyway, he purchased the product. But I think people are just sick of it. And you were early into it. I always didn't get it. But I guess I tried some of it because I guess I had to lean into it a bit. But then I pulled away from it dramatically. So. Mm. Yeah, and to be fair, I, I tried. You try it. We all try it, but mm. I think we've gone back to what feels more right. But obviously, the other thing that happens is you get a lot more confident as you have success yeah. and you have the ability to not compromise on that. So it, exactly. it's like in the beginning, you probably, like in your case especially, you definitely <laughs> needed to make money in those early days. It was like struggle town, right? Yeah. And we'll probably get into that in a minute. But you're in a, you know, you've gone from basically nothing to an eight-figure business so I imagine you've put in your forward orders now for a Lambo and a mansion <laughs> and uh, putting together that high-ticket info product as we speak. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but I, I think you get more confident and bold, and that really came through for me in your last book. Your last book sort of had this theme of, listen, most of what people say is rubbish. They don't know what's successful or not because you didn't know it was going to be a success. It was all by accident and take everything with a grain of salt. That was sort of the theme I got from it. Mm. So that being the case with the new book, is your book just a work because you were bored and you wanted to just get your thoughts off your mind or is it a prescription that someone could listen to on Audible or read and actually get some useful frameworks from? Yeah, Good question. Well, thanks for all of those words. I don't know how to address all of that, but that's great to hear. And uh, like I said, I tried a lot of that stuff as well. And I just had a conversation with a journalist writing about the beer business we've got. And, you know, she was saying, oh, this kind of approach you take with marketing must be really common in beer because you can't copy someone's recipe. So you can sort of, you know, be generous and give away content and that kind of thing. And I, I said, it's not actually like this, this approach that we take with marketing comes from my days in online marketing. And I took the bits out of that that I liked. And there's certainly a lot of aspects to online marketing that I enjoyed, especially this stuff, especially the content creation yeah. and the branding um, and the storytelling. But I didn't like all the cheesy pop-ups and, and the spammy headlines and all of that stuff. And I just always felt that everyone was was optimizing for a quick revenue win where most of the entrepreneurs I was looking up to you know, really looking up to were people who'd built something very strong over a very long period of time. Very rarely does it happen quickly. You know, you kind of hear about it towards the end. It looks like it happens quickly, but it never does. And I think over time that approach has served me well. And it's, it's not just served me well. I, you know, I still follow a lot of the online marketing guys. And there's guys that I talked about in the book and in other places that have also done very well by building something sustainable over a long period of time. Um, and sort of emerged out of that online internet marketing info product world with something sustainable and ongoing and profitable, and and that's awesome. But I dare say a lot of people who were doing that stuff have kind of either gone on a different path or it's not working for them long term. 
to answer your question about the book, I still actually think it's kind of rare for people to, you know, see this approach that we take with marketing as a legitimate marketing approach. Like I think when people think to build a business, you know, I still see it now, like our competitors, they're out buying billboards because that's what people think of when the marketing person gets a job to market a product. They get a budget to spend. They spread it across the portfolio. They listen to a couple of skivvy wearers in an agency, squander it, don't track it, and then um, wonder why they're struggling. Yeah, and it's also a very expensive way to go about it, and it's a it doesn't give you much of an advantage because you know every time. Yeah, and we just saw it with the craft beer survey. We were just voted the number one in the list of craft breweries in the country in this survey. And, and it's really- I saw that. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. It's something we've been working on for years. And, and to get there, you know, it shows we're doing well with the brand, but it shows that we can, like we didn't pay a cent to get people's attention to fill that survey in. Like we did targeted emails, which is, you know, the tactics I'd learned of course. from the online marketing days. We did social media. We did storytelling. You know, we did some good content. We've got a Facebook group that's really engaged, and we told a story over over a lot of years about what we're doing and where we're going. And it was enough to get more people voting us than any other brewery in the country. And it didn't cost us a cent. It's a the only way I know how to do marketing because I've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. And b it's turned out to be a good advantage that other people really struggle to kind of replicate. So in summary. What you can bring to the table is for a normal business, like a non-internet marketing background business, they could learn a lot from the good bits you've taken from the online industry and applied it. Therefore, it would be very relevant for someone listening to this podcast if they are any kind of agency, digital marketing advisor, supplier, working with regular businesses, they could take the exact framework, which I'll share in a minute, and apply that with their clients and maybe skip a few of the dead ends. Maybe they don't have to run paid Facebook ads to a landing page to squeeze people for a webinar, for an application to a wah, 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 right? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think especially if what they're prepared to do is put in time and build something over time. I think that's the key thing. This kind of approach doesn't give you immediate results and never will. Well, I've watched you over time, Dan. And in the early days, you were definitely struggling. Mm. Like I remember you were a web developer and it was a tough business. And you talk about it in your books. And now you're a very confident man who's achieved what most people would consider a, a remarkable success. I've watched every step of the way. You bought a, a lovely home. Your little passion turned in from a home brewery thing to actual physical facilities to amazing looking beer cans. Mm. Just to get to the punchline, I want to do this all ass about, right? Compared to the script. <laughs> yeah. Firstly, we haven't wasted half the episode on your backstory. So what I'd like to do is <laughs> let's just do this in reverse order. First, let's just talk about what is your current business that you're actually having success with, just so in case someone listening hasn't ever heard of you. Yeah, so Black Hops, it's a brewery. We started in my mate's garage with one homebrew batch, and we've now got, well, we've got three breweries and tap rooms in southeast Queensland. We've got another barrel room we're working on where we're probably one of the biggest independent breweries in Queensland, probably the second biggest, I'd say, and a very fast-growing company. We're doubling every year. We're doing more than a million dollars a month in revenue and just going from strength to strength. Amazing. So does that mean you're good mates with Mick Fanning now? <laughs> I met Mick a couple of times. He, The Bolter guys are really good. I met him really early, early on, super nice. I wouldn't say we're good mates, but I met him and the, the guys from Bolter are really nice. They're a good crew. Well, he'd know who you are, I'm sure, by now, which is good, like neighboring competitors. <laughs> okay, so that was the first part I wanted to do. The second part is let's do the bit in the middle somewhere between struggling web agency and the brewery 
you had a great recurring subscription business that you sold off. Do you want to just address that chapter in your life? Yeah. So I built a, again, just in, literally in my garage, I just sent an email <laughs> one day to a list after a lot of years of struggle, you know, asking if people wanted a, a monthly recurring service for fixing WordPress sites. And, you know, I've had four or five people sign up in the first week and I had four or five people sign up every week for the next couple of years and turned it into a, a million dollar company and sold it to GoDaddy, I think less than three years after I started it for a whole bunch of reasons. But one being it was nice to sell something and make some money. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And the timing ended up perfectly kind of, you know, I sold that, didn't have to work on after the sale because my business partner did that. And then I went straight into Black Ops and into this business. Perfect. And probably the most boring one is the original struggle, like every single person. Like this is a triangle. Few people can relate to your top part. Some people can relate to the middle part, especially me. I built and sold a recurring subscription business. And like you, I've been trying different things over the years and finding my little sweet spot and watching people come and go. My business has been fantastic for that whole time. Mm. And then there's a lot of people can relate to the struggle phase. Do you believe that you can bypass the struggle phase or does every person have to crawl over broken glass? <laughs> I have no idea. What do you think? <laughs> you know, I'm struggling to think of an example of someone who has gone straight past that phase. And it's something my rich Mercedes-Benz clients used to tell me that I heard it two ways. I heard you're going to have to crawl over broken glass or you're going to have to eat beans, which means like you're just going to all you'll be able to afford is baked beans for a little while there while you're struggling. That guy owns most of North Ride. He owns all the big residential towers mm. and he started from scratch. He'd be worth hundreds of millions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was still wearing secondhand clothes with gravy stains on them when he was buying his secondhand Mercedes Benz. He just couldn't <laughs> get out of that mode. And that was always a big lesson to me too. Some people get stuck in the poverty or scarcity mindset. Mm. So, I don't know. I, I think well, we definitely see a lot of people struggle. Not many people make it to the other side. And really, that's the aim of what I want to do in this podcast. So the next part I want to go to is like massive spoiler alert. I want to go straight to the guts of your book, Compound Marketing. I would love to share the framework because you break it down into four pieces and then a conclusion. Can you just tell us the four steps that you feel have helped you with your business that someone listening to this could actually emulate? So if they could only listen to this snippet, and they got the 64-4 of what this is all about. What's Dan's special recipe for brewing up a fantastic business? Go. Nice. I like the brewing metaphor there. It's good. You've always been good, strong with your metaphors. <laughs> so I've got to be good at something because I don't know how to brew beer. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, just a brief backstory. You know, I enjoy the process of writing the books, but I've written about everything already. You know, I've written about starting a business. I've written the story about the brewery. I've written a story, a book about content marketing. I've written the book that I thought was my kind of business philosophy type book, the one you mentioned yeah. called This is the Answer. But I sort of started thinking about, well, what haven't I written about, A, and B, what is not captured in those things? So like I've written about content, but the more I think about what we do, like you mentioned our cans look really good. We put an enormous amount of effort into the design of our cans. Like we have a beer that might sell out in an hour and a half that I would personally spend hours and hours with my designers working on printing full wrap labels sometimes getting professional photography, maybe just getting our own decent photo. You know, it's a beer we've designed and brewed from scratch. We've canned it on site. We've got an amazing looking design. Some of these beers will sell out in an hour. And, you know, a lot of people would think that's a complete waste of time. But this is something that I've, I feel like I've sort of always had in the back of my mind, but there's things that aren't just content that I think are a key to the way I go about marketing. And I started thinking about what those things are. So the four things to answer your question are brand, content, story, and community. 
And a lot of the stories in the book are about black ops because I really feel like what was exciting to me about this business was starting a business where I could apply my kind of way of marketing, which I hadn't really written down other than to say I like creating a lot of content, but apply it in an industry where other people aren't necessarily doing it and applying it where you've got a physical product because there's something really rewarding about making a physical product and putting a lot of effort into the way it looks and the way you present it. You can pick it up and feel it. You can see it in the fridge. You can see people enjoying it. And so, yeah, the branding is something I'm really passionate about. I've talked about it a lot, but not a huge amount in my books. Content, obviously, is, is a mainstay. And these days, it's changed a lot. It's, it's, you know, almost all of our content now is some kind of social media post. Back when I first wrote the book, it was all about blogging and, and you know, to a lesser extent, podcasting. And the storytelling is something I sort of naturally fell into after realizing that I was already doing it, you know, and listening to your stuff and, you know, doing my income reports and people commenting on, you know, what you're doing here is telling a story. I'm like, okay, well, that's something I can do with the beer. And the community, the final piece is just absolutely critical. Like we've got a core group of people that follow what we do. They love what we do. We're intensely engaged with this group of people, you know, to an extent that I've never been with any other business. You know, like we see them in the street. We know them. We see them in the tap rooms. We're friends with a lot of them. Um, you know, we've got a really engaged group where these people are in all the time where we've got a homebrew competition where we're giving them our recipes. They're brewing our beers. They suggest beers that we end up brewing and selling. Like it's a really amazing network, a community that to me is such a fundamental fundamental reason for the brand success that it's enough to be a pillar in a you know to use your work about framework of sorts yeah look i can relate to this on so many levels as someone who has actively fostered community for a decade it's a big part of it isn't it? it's like the joy of i mean i'm here in my little room i've been working from home since 2008 and wherever i'm in the world i can be connected to other people all around the world you know i, I found this old gary halbert video from about 2004 this is before Facebook groups and all of that. And he said the two things people crave online is content and connection. Mm. And I thought, isn't that interesting? It's pretty much what Dan's saying. It's pretty much my business model. I just keep cranking out podcasts, endlessly cranking out podcasts. And I speak to people in my community yeah. pretty much every day, forever. And I learn so much about them and I get it's such a rich tapestry and it. Um, it's, it's a joy to be connected to that. How much joy do you get collaborating with your two best mates in the brewery and then seeing your customers consuming the product? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing to have Eddie and Govs, you know, work still as great mates, you know, running this business. And actually, to answer your question before, whether you have to go through struggles, I was thinking about them when you asked that question, because I'm sure they've had their ups and downs, but it is their first business. Right. And for this to be a first business, it's not bad. I mean, depending on how things work out, but it feels like things are going pretty well. <laughs> it looks like they're going well. I mean, yeah. And, you know, and then there's the fact that it's beer. Yeah. I actually, I think I had one of your early samples, like in the very, very early phase. You had the very, very first Black Ops beer. The very first, right? And the very first, yeah. It's really more of an example of how you operate. You came down to Sydney. It's another state away. You visited my local neighbourhood. You arranged to catch up and we met at the coffee shop and you gave me the beer. Now, at that time, I didn't, I mean, how could I? Even you wouldn't have known how significant that beer brand is going to become in the future. That's the early seeds. That is the acorn that turns into a great big tree. And it's basically what I would say is playing the long game. You play the long game. I play the long game. I've always played the long game. I still feel like I'm in my apprenticeship. So it's interesting for me to watch you because, you know, I've been in the background building this monster spreadsheet of probably a hundred surfboards that I've measured, ridden, reviewed, made notes on 
consolidated, sat down with a designer and modeled on CAD type software, my own designs. And we produced three so far that I've then tested in different waters from the Maldives through to Queensland. Burley, I love Burley, <laughs> and made notes in that, you know, that you write about the physical thing. Mm. And I suspect one day down the track, there'll be some crystallization of all of that research and development into something beyond where it's at now. So I'm paying big attention to this. And everywhere you look, and you won't have to look far, you're going to hear about story, 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 story. It's interesting hearing a lot more about brand from direct response marketing type people or from that world, because mm. it's definitely... They're not interested in brand when you first talk about it, and they're certainly not interested in design. And there was even a whole, you know, ugly pages sell more movement, right? Yes. Which is yeah. shocking. And I think when you spoke at my Superfast Business Live event, you were talking about your experience hiring a logo designer and putting a lot more effort into it. And then I've seen you just rip people down and say, look, if you're going to get some cheap-ass thing from a contest site, like you're better off just to go with no logo and just use a font mm. until you can get a proper design. Do you want to zoom in on that a bit? Because I know how much you're interested in design. And I, I literally just bought a book on design today. Oh, nice. What was the book? Uh, I'll just get it off my Kindle here. It's got to bump yours off it. <laughs> I was reading about it from this ferocious tweet storm. And the book is just loading up now. Let's get it. Because I, I think when I read the um, – I talk about this in my book. When I read the Steve Jobs book, which I think came out a couple of weeks after he died, that was really the moment for me where I really, really started paying attention to brand because it was clear to me from reading that book that this was something that he was very passionate about. You're talking about the Walter Isaacson one? Correct, yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the book wasn't about design, but it was very obvious that this was something that he was really passionate about. That book led me to Insanely Simple, which was a design book from the Apple guy. Right. And that's the moment when I went to Kindle predominantly because I got that book on my trip to the Philippines and I was halfway through it and my team manager at the time was paying attention to it. So I gave it to her and I thought I'll buy another one at the airport on the way back. And then I couldn't. There was no airport bookstore there, so I downloaded it on my Kindle in the airport lounge, and I read it on my iPhone on the way back to Sydney, <laughs> eight-hour flight. It was that good. I just couldn't stop reading this book, and it was pivotal for me too. The book I just purchased today was called Creative Selection, Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Nice. Well, who wrote that one? This one is from Ken Kotsienda. Right. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I mentioned in my book about a comment from a guy who worked at Apple about the way they design certain things. I don't know if it was the same guy. It kind of rings a bell. I hadn't heard of him before, but I don't read much about Apple. The argument that I saw on Twitter was about how Apple will just decide what people need and then make it with a fierce passion. Right. Whereas Google will split test. This is the same tweet storm, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 52 different colors of blue or whatever. And different blues. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. that's what I was reading. And I'm like, you know, I'm definitely a lot more like the Apple guy. You won't see me sending out a lot of, you know, what should I create type things. I hardly ever poll my listeners. Like, how are they ever going to say in a poll, I want to hear from Dan Norris about his new book. I want to find out what software updates have come with 10X Pro. I want to learn the top three business philosophies that are Japanese, you know, to find out more about another culture. I want to get a little bit of SEO, and then I'd like a solo episode here or there about what's going on in your life and what changes you've made to your business, et cetera. Like, they're just not going to be able to answer that. So I just have to say, okay, well, I speak to 500 people a week. 
what's the common pattern here? You know, where's the puck going to be, you know, to take that old uh, ice hockey metaphor? Yeah. And I have to think about my goal is when I'm producing content, I want my audience to say, oh, my God, this is exactly what I need right now. It's like you're reading my mind. That's the result I'm shooting for. And, you know, when I did a training yesterday on conversational conversions, and some of them said, hey, I think this is probably your best training you've ever done because it's exactly where the market's at. It's like, what if we let go of this very linear, like, you know, all these mapped out funnels where someone goes from the ad to the page to this to the cart and then you know, theoretically that's your – what about all the stuff that goes to – what if you could just engage people in a conversation and then mm. find out what their challenge is and see what the best solution is and help them? So I basically gave them a map for that. But yeah, the creative and design process, coming back to the point, is probably a lot more significant than people realize. I'm just thinking about my surfboards. I've got a few here. Nice. The brand and the style and the history of the surfboard is so significant. Right. And when it's integrated into the brand and they match it with the right surfer talent to showcase it, mm. I will wait a year for a board that costs three times more than one I can go and buy off the shelf today Yeah. because of that story and the brand. It's like shoes in America, the whole market that's come up around buying shoes. Like People are just spending absurd amounts of money on these things. But I think like looking at your surfboards, it's a good example because like I mentioned in the book, you know, a brand is kind of how you feel about something. And like I know because I'm a surfer as well, not a very good one and not a very regular one, unfortunately. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm glad we got to share some waves. Like, yeah. You and I have surfed together in basically life-threatening situation as it turns out <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> you know, just while we're on that. That day that we surfed where we surfed at the secret break there that hardly anyone knows about, <laughs> I was surfing my board that had quite a wide tail on it and it was a quad fin. And on that particular wave, it's quite hollow. And it's the first time that I've surfed that board where the back actually started sliding out. And I learned a valuable lesson about tail shape and wave type and realized like that combination doesn't work. So it was a really big education, but I was out in the field learning on the job. You can't really read about that. You might get a bit of theory about it, yeah. but until you experience that, it's like, oh, I now know this causes that. So on my next design, I'm going to, you know, pull the tail in if I'm planning to surf on hollow waves. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and I think the brand, yeah, the surfboard's a good example because when you look at a surfboard, you'll have a certain feeling, you'll have a certain memory or a future vision of, you know, where you're going to surf it and how you're going to feel when you surf it, that kind of stuff. And all the colors and imagery is all relevant. In our industry, making any kind of liquid product and selling it in packaging around Australia is incredibly difficult. I mean, it's so competitive. It's so expensive. Every month we pay over a quarter of a million dollars just in alcohol excise to the government. And that gets paid you know, before we get paid for the beer. So like, it's an exceptionally challenging business to run. Plus, you must have legal constraints on who can even view your content yep. in some circumstances. Yeah, you've got every challenge. You know, This is not an easy business. Every challenge you can think of, all the most expensive things, the, the rent, the overheads, the equipment, the staff. This business runs with expensive equipment, expensive ingredients and staff. Yeah, but beer. It's beer. Uh, I, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. Do you think this is going to happen when they start opening up the market to things like legal cannabis supply, et cetera, in the future, if that ever happens? Oh, yeah. I think that'll be a big thing, especially with the new government in the US. And it's already starting to happen here. It'll be a massive category here. It's not for me, but I'm, I'm, happy, making, I'm happy making beer. But I guess the point I'm making with the brand is like for six years, this business has lost money. 
this last financial year, we made $20,000 profit on a revenue of about $6.5 million. And it took us six years of losing money to get to that point. So it's incredibly difficult. And it's if you can have a product that you can sell for a decent price and you don't have to cut the price on because A, it's a great product and B, people care about the brand, I think it could be the difference between going out of business and not going out of business because you know you can't lose money forever. And if you're constantly discounting your product, which a lot of people in our industry do, it's just not going to add up. You're either going to have to get investors with very, very deep pockets to just dish out cash for the sake of it, or you're just going to go out of business. So I think it's life and death. And how did you fund the business for those six years? Every way you can think of. You name any <laughs> way of funding anything, and I've, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is there one in particular, like, so you've done the bank of mum and dad or the loan from the bank, the fundraising through crowdsourcing type things, yeah, pre-selling things, I suppose? We've done pre-selling, we've done normal crowdfunding, we've done equity crowdfunding with the first brewery in Australia to close an equity crowdfunding campaign. I've done nine investment rounds over six years for private investment. We've got 50 investors. Does it end up being financially lucrative for Dan when you take into account investors and a three-way partnership? Will it end up being a financially useful thing or is it a pathway to something greater? Yeah, no, I mean, the business is worth a lot if you look at the amount that we value at, yep. you know, when we do investment around. So it's already made it. Well, yeah, I don't like to think of things in those terms. I think it's a very valuable thing we have. You only get the benefit from that value if you sell it. So, you know, I don't want to sell it. There's no life beyond that at the moment. Like, no. I think Amazon lost money for the first seven years. Yeah, they lost, I think, the first 10 years, and then the next 10 made right. bugger all. Right. So there's a lot of upside coming down the track for you, probably. And, like, if you were to apply your same methodology to another related industry, and Gary V talks about this a lot, you know, he thinks BMW should make sneakers and et cetera, and Tesla's now making alcohol. Tequila. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think that you were at one point quite keen on Tesla. Do you think that's something you, you'll do? I mean, you already sort of borrowed a, what looks like a video game <laughs> yeah. hat tip. Yeah, we could make a Black Ops video game. I don't, <laughs> I don't, that might cross over with Activision a little bit too much. They might, the lawyers might come after us. We've got plans. We're doing barrel-aged beer. We've got a separate tap room for that. I'd like to do whiskey. We've started collaborating with some other distilleries on whiskey. I don't really know. You know, We're doing beer because my mate was a brewer and knew how to make beer. I wanted to do some kind of physical product. I thought it would be fun to do kind of an electric skateboard or something, but I don't know anything about any of this stuff. You know, All I know is, I guess, now I know how to run a physical business with staff and overheads and the rest of it and a lot more about finance now with this business. But other than that, I really only know about content marketing and you know online marketing. So I'm not sure what else I could do. I'm not sure how far those skills transfer. I think clothing could be something for you. We actually sell a lot of merch. Yeah. We, we spend a lot of time on different merch. We've got to design merch areas in all of our breweries. I'm trying to think how much money we make on merch. It, it's not insignificant. It's in the hundreds of thousands a year. Yeah. Well, I look to other industries, you know, like the surfing industry, all the money in surfing is in the merch and the clothing. Yeah. Right. I'm glad you're validating my gut feel. But I'm thinking, you know, one of the benchmarks for me is the company Volabec, and they make interesting clothing. Have you heard of them? No. They do brilliant marketing. Their emails are very seductive. They sell out instantly. They make everything from planet Earth type clothing that you could bury, like, you know, it'll decompost to clothes that will last forever. Like, this is how good their marketing is. They have a hundred year jacket. It'll last a hundred years. And I bought two of them. <laughs> and then they come out with an indestructible jacket. Like it's so tough, you can't be destroyed. And so I bought that as well, and just in case my 100-year jacket doesn't last. What are you going to be doing in this jacket that needs this kind of strength? 
<laughs> oh my god! I mean, that's where the marketing is so brilliant. It just tells the best story. Like mm. everyone knows about nylon, but this stuff's made out of Dyneema or something, and <laughs> it's like it's so strong they use it for ships to moor their you know the mooring ropes. So they put it in spacecraft doors as protection and in bulletproof vests. So who wouldn't want a bit of technical clothing like that? <laughs> uh, and the colder it gets, the stronger it gets, right? The funny thing is, like, within the first three days, I actually destructed it. Wow. And uh, I took a picture of it and sent it off. And they said, oh, listen, no, that, that shouldn't happen. Let's take care of that. And they sent me the exact same thing again, like, straight away by shipping. And you don't want to know how much this clothing costs. but No, I was just thinking that. <laughs> like, when my daughter led me around, was Kmart the other day. Like, it's a huge playground for her. She just walks around and around and around and around. She picked up a hat off the rack, and it was nylon. And I think it was $6. You know, she was pretty interested in the hat, so I let her keep it, and I bought it. And I reckon the nylon in that and the Dyneema, they, they look kind of similar. So you could have a $6 nylon clothing item or you could have like a $1,000 jacket that's going to be indestructible. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that's a good case study for people will pay for expensive clothing. And the way they sell it is brilliant. You know, I just buy it as a lesson in brilliant marketing and fulfillment <laughs> and service. And uh, you feel good in it too. It's good stuff. I bet. Yeah, I'll, I'll look into them. Make sure you line up your funding first. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to look at their Instagram. I'm not going to purchase the jacket. Get on the email <laughs> list. Just get on the email list and I dare you not to buy anything in the first 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I've always felt very strongly that it, it's never just about marketing. Like yeah. it needs to be, like you mentioned, the quality of the product as well, although it sounds like you had an issue there. But but generally, it sounds like this place probably makes very good quality. No, generally, the product's fine. Yeah. You know, it takes one year to make it and they make it in places like Portugal or whatever. One of the other clothing places that I really like is the online tailor store and they have a very, very good process. Like you choose every element of your garment from the material to the collar that you put your exact dimension so it's completely tailored to you and then when you order it they start sending you a little picture of the person making the garment oh nice. with the, that's cool. the exact same fabric you've chosen well that's storytelling right there you know it's going to mean so much more and they have a brilliant like absolutely brilliant interface you can click on all the different colors and options and it shows you your exact product in real time with their sort of design yeah and then it arrives via fedex or whatever very quickly and it's exactly perfect fit and they store your stuff, and it's very easy to just re-up. I think I've ordered seven or eight shirts now, which is quite a few for someone who really only wears T-shirts most of the time of the year. Yeah, yeah. you've got the same uniform as me, black T-shirt. I do. Like, I don't wear shoes. I'm, I'm literally not wearing shoes right now, and that's the joy of working from home. Yeah. Well, I always take the lesson, and I've used the experience that I've gained from those two interactions many, many times with my customers because it's easy to identify a gap between what is available and what they're offering. So yeah. when I I look at your business and what you do you're just so strong with the fundamentals it's clear that you care about your customers it's clear that you have a lot of pride in the products you're making you don't do any of the bs and douchery that other marketers do you're not in it for a quick buck that's why i wanted you on the show last time and when you said you're looking for podcasts i said yes i'd like to have a podcast please <laughs> thank you very much so we've talked about the framework yeah. but importantly you sort of have a message at the end about the future what do you think are the big changes from the way things were 
at the beginning of the year to the way things might be next year that we can all take a lesson from? God, that's a good question. I mean, this year has been an incredibly good year mm-hmm. for us and our business. So I don't know about you. Me? Oh, me too. And and yeah. I'd have to say, I mean, I don't mean to brag, but the bulk of my customers are having record month after record month. In it. It's um, exactly. Partly yeah. because, you know, I deal with predominantly online businesses and most of that industry's had a surge. Right. And partly because I've been working really hard on risk mitigation. And you even actually, thank you for referencing me in your book about Own the Race Course. But mm. I made sure they're not sitting there totally dependent on one thing, you know, wherever possible. And they have a lot more control of their business than a lot of their peers. And, you know, was it a week ago when, you know, there was an election frenzy? Facebook was just shutting everything down left, right and center and <laughs> ad costs went through the roof and stuff. And it's times like that that these strategies come into play. They're like a hedge fund. They're only useful when the crap hits the fan, but you're really glad you've got them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I mean, I have kind of don't predict too much in the future just because like when this COVID thing came, like we sat around and me and my business partners were like, we're fucked. Like if people can't buy beer anymore, like people can't go to the bar, we're all kinds of fucked. You got to go to them, right? There's no planning you can do for that. But even with that, like, you know, like our online sales went up from, I think, probably 10, 15 grand a month to 85 grand in that one month when we had the shutdown. I mean, it was a, a million dollar online business overnight. But that doesn't scratch the surface of what this business does, you know, as a whole. And because it's manufacturing stuff, like we've got it all made there, ready to go. You can't just dial it back. It's it's, it's a big process for that. But it's turned out to be a fantastic year for us. So, yeah, I don't really do predictions. But I think I've tried to, you know, with these concepts, think about what's worked for me in this business. So I've got fresh examples, but also what's worked for me and for other people going back as far as I can remember being in business. Because I think things like storytelling and content and community and branding are, are universal and in hindsight, they were the ways I built the other business without writing them down and without kind of understanding that's what I was doing. And I think they're, they're universal. And the only thing that changes really is the kind of the places you put the content. You know what I mean? Like it's like that's been some big changes. But for us, we're putting out more content than ever. It's just in different forms. Like we've got thousands of posts going into – I just saw the report this morning. I think there's over a 1,000 threads in our Facebook ambassadors group. Only a handful of them were started by me. Most of them are started by people in the community. I imagine you have the same with yours. And this is content. Yeah, I don't start posts in my community. Like for the last 10 years, I'm a very, very infrequent post starter. It's not my – I'm not front-footed. You probably know that about me. I'm actually fairly reserved. I prefer to respond and react than to be the instigator, which is why I'm not an Insta celebrity and I'm not a blogger who's in your face every five seconds because that's not my default setting. I'm actually a responder and I like to answer the questions rather than start the questions. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful when your community can create their own vibe. It is. And that's all content. You know, like we do the blog posts, we do the podcasts, we do the longer social media posts, we do all that stuff. I do, you know, podcasts, press, all the normal content stuff. But for the majority of the people in our core audience, the thing they probably see the most is a forum, a Facebook group post from someone other than us about Black Ops. And that's the way content is changing. And it's to me, it's still content marketing because we've created that environment where people want to do that and talk about the product and it costs us nothing to do it. And we do make the compromise I mentioned in the book that, you know, Facebook groups are still very, very effective, Mm. especially in this case. And sometimes you do make the compromise 
in you know having that method in your marketing, knowing that Facebook could switch it off at any moment and screw you over, which they probably will. But you also build a database, knowing that you yeah, build a database, yeah, yeah. you migrate them into other platforms here and there. You know, if they visit the site, you've got the ability to reach them probably through a campaign if you needed to, if you had a pixel running, yeah. even if you never use it. And the email is still that old dog that just keeps giving. It is for me. Yeah, email is everything for me. That is like we work so hard on keeping it clean keeping it consistent i've had email experts tell me if you're not emailing your database at least once a week it'll just get destroyed for deliverability etc so that's a big message that keeps recurring on this particular podcast email is the big dog yeah email's been forgotten about in our industry i think you know with this survey that we just topped you know, when I sent emails out for that, we use Active Campaign now, and I've got groups of communities that I know engage with our brand for different reasons. And I can email them and ask them a different question than I'm emailing another group. And I can see how effective it is because I can see exactly how many people click on this link. And every year, I track how many people click on this link because that means I'll know how many votes we're going to get in this survey. And just having those different groups of communities, which is something I only put in place at the start of the year when we moved over to Active Campaign away from MailChimp, was enormously effective. Very nice. What are you most excited about? Just to finish up on, like, I imagine you've probably got half a book sitting on your laptop somewhere, but what's getting you really, like, peaked about in a very short term? <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually sort of coming down off a of peak because we had a... Um, I had a, an opportunity that came about through our accountant to buy another brewery, which I just checked the Slack before this. It was only four months ago when I had this original phone conversation with my accountant about it. Like just a, a random thing he said, like, I've got this other brewery that I'm involved in. They might be interested in selling. And just the weekend, just gone, we just launched Black Ops in Brisbane after acquiring the business, going through that whole process and, you know, remodeling the whole thing in 10 days where I was looking after the design of it and the build with all the tradies and all the rest of it and then launched it. I mean, it's just, it's what dreams are made of. It it was a really amazing, exciting thing to happen. And even just acquiring a a real physical business and all the legal aspects and the challenges with what happens with that, it was something I've never done before. So that's what I'm coming, I'm coming down a fat. I think I'm probably ready for a holiday and then I can can think about the next step. Well, you know, like Christmas is going to be here soon. So you probably have a well-deserved eggnog beer celebration and uh, roll into next year. You know, you've had a good year. Well done. And thanks for putting aside the time to come and chat with us. Your story's been inspiring. I asked you a few times to come and speak at my event about this business you're building, but it seems like it was just the perfect time. And I hope this isn't the last time we catch up because, you know, you've basically been there for the majority of my online journey as a a similar cohort in the early days. And even though you've gone down a slightly different path, I feel like we've got a very strong connection. And I know you've got so many rich and interesting chapters to yet unfold. And uh, let's keep this journey going. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. I've looked up to you for many years, as you know, and I'm always happy to come on your podcast. It's not because I'm too busy. It's just I actually just don't think about promoting my stuff as often as I should, but I'm always happy, always happy to come on. Good man. And congrats on doing so many episodes. Every time I see your post, I'm like, I can't believe he's done that many bloody episodes because I'm just trying to think like when I first started listening to your podcast was I think when you were doing the Freedom Motion, it might have been before that. Yeah. But I mean, that one probably doesn't even count in the 780, does it? Not at all. No, the, no. the Freedom Motion, Think Act Get, Sales Marketing Profit and Kicking Back yeah. are all separate to the 780. If you were to add them up, <laughs> you probably get about a thousand. And we're not even talking about, you know, when I'm the guest, because I know I've done plenty of those. Probably more. Yeah. Is it the most out of any Australian business podcast? It must be. I don't know. I'm sure there's someone belting along with thousands, but 
you know, I'm all for lots of content, but I've, you know, I've said this before in the podcast. I definitely want to work on making them better. Yeah. I want better. Like you said, my magic phrase in this podcast already. That's my benchmark for a podcast. If I don't elicit it, I feel like I've come short. And the comment I'm looking for is that's a great question. I feel that's my job is to advocate for what the listener would want me to ask you if they had you here because I know I'm in a privileged position to be able to have you here and like ask you questions in real time and I also have a lot of gratitude and appreciation for how many people actually listen to my podcast because I mean I wouldn't keep publishing them if no one listened to them yeah and luckily people keep listening to the podcast and they tell me all about it uh, and their emails and when they join super fast business membership they almost always say I've been listening to your podcast it's like yeah Absolutely the number one prior port of call before someone interacts with me on a purchase. So yeah, it's very powerful. It's definitely been a big, powerful machine for me. And luckily, I figured out a way that I can just talk for a living because that suits me perfectly. I can't even type. <laughs> <laughs> luckily, I can type pretty fast. So I prefer to write books than do podcasts. You're a machine with them. Eh? I do like going on other people's podcasts. Inspiring. I'm just working on my second and third book at the moment. So I, oh, nice. it's always a struggle. But I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you can do the audio book. That's probably easier for you than it is to me. That is real painful for me to do. It is. It made so hard to listen to your own stuff. There's nothing new. Mm. It takes like for me to sit down straight for six hours is like a big commitment. <laughs> I very rarely do more than like two hour blocks. So that's, uh, yeah, that's really hardcore. I have to send the family away and just buckle down. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sorry. Well, I look forward to reading it uh, when it comes out. Absolutely. I think you'll enjoy the next couple for sure. One of them's about scaling and the other one's about memberships. And then after that, I'm going to go down the revenue share path. Nice. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And we'll pop up a transcription of this episode and some sort of associated notes at 784 on superfastbusiness.com. This is ad-free podcasting and uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'll listen to you on a future episode. Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com. Thank you.